Good morning, people of God. How are you this morning? Hot enough out there for you yet? No? Maybe? Well, let's try to generate some heat in here this morning, too. Amen? Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at Herod Agrippa, how he lived and then how he died for failing, give, failing to give praise to God. You may recall that just before Herod died, he threw Peter into prison. And that's the story that I'd like to look at together this morning a little bit closer as we actually wrap up this first section of Acts. And all God's people said, Amen. You're still hungry for Acts, right? Okay, just checking. All right, I'll begin reading at uh, verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After, unrest, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Look at Herod here, 16 soldiers to guard one man. Herod's not taking any chances, is he? I wonder if he remembers or he's, or he's heard the story of not too long before, right? When Peter and the apostles were thrown in jail, they went to fetch him the next morning for trial. Nobody could find him. There they were teaching against on the Temple Mount, and the Sanhedrin was embarrassed. It strikes me that Herod is not a man that takes kindly to being embarrassed. So 16 soldiers to guard one man, and it gets even better. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So not only 16 men guarding Peter, he's chained with two chains. If they followed a customary practice, at least for the more notorious criminals, he's probably chained to the two guards. And then the rest of the guards are taking turns, or all together, the Bible doesn't say, are posted as sentries outside. Look at mighty Herod Agrippa flexing his muscle here. Yes, he's so sure. He's making sure he's in control. But little does he know what's about to happen next. Verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself, came to his senses, we might say, and said, 
Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, hey, I'm really free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. In Jesus' day, many believed that each person had a guardian angel. If I took a poll today, it wouldn't surprise me. Many of you, perhaps, share that belief. In Jesus' day, they also believed these angels resembled, sounded like even, the people they were guarding. Jesus says in Matthew 18, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now there's a scholarly dispute over the interpretation of this verse. Some feel that Jesus is referring to the spirits of the children themselves when they die. But at the very least, we have passages like Psalm 91.11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And in Hebrews 1, God asks the rhetorical question, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So whatever your opinion on the details of angels, the fact that angels exist and that they exist to help believers is clearly stated in Scripture. We certainly have an example of that before us in Acts 12 this morning. Luke uses the word angel 23 times in Acts 28 chapters. Seven of those times, 30%, is in this one story of Peter escaping from prison. It's important to Luke, I think, that an angel is afoot. Back to verse 16. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. I'll bet. I'll bet they took some... You go tell Herod. No, you go tell... No, I'm not going to tell Herod. And indeed, verse 19, after Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. These are the very words of God. Amen. Amen. Now Luke mentions the church praying throughout Peter's miraculous escape. In fact, twice he mentions prayer, once in verse 5 and again in verse 12. So let's talk a bit about prayer this morning. By way of introduction, there are three questions I often get about prayer, especially from my teen students. One of the most common questions goes something like this. 
Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Have you ever been there where you're asking that question? If not out loud, even to yourself, why doesn't God answer my prayer? My response is that God always answers prayer. Proverbs says, God hears the prayer of the righteous. Peter says in 1 Peter that God's ears are attentive to the prayer of the righteous. And Peter ought to know, too, shouldn't he, that God hears prayer. God sends an angel. Sometimes the answer is yes when God answers prayer. But sometimes it's no. And sometimes it's yes, but not in the way you expect. But He always answers prayer. Acts 12, I think, shows all three types of answers. The most obvious example is the yes response to Peter, right? God says yes to the prayers for Peter. In Peter's own words, he's indeed saved from Herod's clutches. But sometimes God answers no to prayers. In verse 2, a verse which unfortunately is often overlooked in a discussion on prayer, we read that Herod kills the Apostle James. Now it's true, Luke doesn't tell us directly that the church was praying for James. But Luke doesn't say here that they weren't praying for him either. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 1 verse 14, the apostles and others prayed constantly. Seems likely then, doesn't it, that the church would have been praying for James too when Herod went after him? And for some reason, a reason known only to God, God answers, no. No, I'm afraid James is not going to make it. We'll come back to James in a minute. The third type of answer God gives to prayer is yes, but not in the way you expect. Maybe the angel was an unexpected way that God answered yes to the prayers for Peter. I wonder if they expected God to send an angel. And I wonder if the praying church expected God to have Peter escape from prison. Maybe they were simply praying for God to give Peter strength and peace and courage and comfort. Maybe they were praying that Peter's trial would find him innocent. Whatever the details of their prayers, they certainly seem surprised, don't they, when Peter shows up banging on the door? Can you picture that night? There's Peter. He's banging on the door. Interesting that it's locked. Isn't it? I wonder if they were afraid that Herod was coming for them next. First James and then Peter. They locked their door. Anyway, there's Peter banging on the door. And what do the grown-ups do? They send a kid to answer the door. Nice. A servant girl, we read, lowest of the low. They send a servant girl to check it out. The older, more important folks, too busy praying to be bothered by a knock on the door, so they send a little girl to make sure Herod's guards aren't standing there. Nice. So off she goes. I imagine her heart pounding against her chest. It's always a bit daunting, isn't it? I'm 41, and I'm scared to go answer the door when it's dark outside. 
Doubly so if a Herod is after you, I would think. And I really like what Luke does here. Look what he does. He mentions the servant girl by name, Rhoda. It's odd that Luke would mention her by name. I like to think he's honoring that girl's bravery and maybe also the fact that she immediately believes that it's Peter. And so he records his name. And I don't know, I, I think it's so cool that 2,000 years later we know the girl's name as part of God's inspired word. Way to go, Rhoda. Isn't God cool? I'd like to find Rhoda someday. She's on my list. I've got a long list. Get to heaven. Rhoda's on the name. Hey, Rhoda, tell me what that was like. She's on the list. Anyway, Rhoda, the servant girl, goes to the door. She's a bright little girl, too. She doesn't simply throw the door open. Maybe she says through the door something like, Who's there? And then Peter says something back. Maybe, It's Peter. Please let me in. Little Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice. She gets so excited. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's Peter. She's so excited, she forgets to open the door and instead runs back to the praying church and says, It's Peter. It's Peter. Peter is at the door. And, of course, the church immediately responds, He is! Wow! Go let him in! Praise God! Right? Well, not quite. There they are, praying for Peter. And when Rhoda comes to tell them that God literally has left His amazing and delightful answer to their prayers on their doorstep, they say to Rhoda, Peter, Peter... Yeah, right. You're crazy. Stop this foolishness. Can't you see we're busy praying for Peter? It's deeply ironic, isn't it? That during Peter's escape, the iron gate from the dungeon to the city opens by itself, but the church door won't budge. Peter has to keep banging away. I'm sure there's another sermon there somewhere, a tale of two doors, perhaps. What's Peter got to be thinking? What in the world? (laughs) Guys, hello? Open the door. Herod's guards might come down the alley any minute. Please open the door. Sometimes God answers yes to prayer in unexpected ways. One of my favorite stories of an unexpected yes to prayer is about a Scottish missionary named John, it's Patton or Patone, My apologies, John. I don't know the pronunciation of your name. We'll go with Patton. One night, hostile tribesmen surrounded Patton's mission headquarters in the South Pacific, intent on burning it and killing Patton and his wife. The two of them prayed all through that terror-filled night, asking God to deliver them. When daylight came... They were surprised to see the attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. And Patton had an opportunity to ask him, what kept them from burning the house and killing them? The chief replied, who are all those men that were there with you? Patton said, there were no men there, only my wife and I. But the chief said that they had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. 
They seemed to circle the mission station. So the tribesmen were afraid to attack. Patton realized that God had sent angels to protect them. You know, I haven't done an official count, but it seems to me, isn't it interesting that so many of those stories of people seeing angels come from cultures that we're tempted at least to describe as more primitive and less sophisticated than ours? I wonder if the reason we don't seem to see angels as much anymore is not because they're no longer there, but because in our age of science and reason and cynicism, we've forgotten how to look and to see the miraculous, the unexpected, including God's help through angels from time to time. Look around you. You may be sitting next to an angel. And guys, I mean other than your wife, okay? A second common question I hear about prayer is this. Something like, if God's will is always done, if He is the sovereign God of the universe and His plan is going to unfold with or without us, why pray at all? Did you ever tempted to ask that one? Do my prayers really matter? Do they really make any difference? If God's going to do what He's going to do, no matter what, why pray? A couple of observations here. First, there are many examples in the Bible where God is clearly acting in response to prayer. Where God's will, in a sense at least, seems to change in answers to prayer. Luke certainly implies the praying and Peter's escape are closely related, right? Only when Moses intercedes for Israel following the, the golden calf incident, only when Moses prays does God decide not to wipe them out. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi from prison, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And James tells us the prayer of the righteous are powerful and effective. There are many other such examples from Scripture and church history. So pray. It may indeed make a huge difference in what happens. We don't know. We don't know when God waits to hear our prayers before acting. So if we don't know, pray all the time in every circumstance just in case. Second, when we pray, when we praise someone other than the person looking back at us in the mirror, when we seek help beyond our own ability and control, we learn things. Things like humility, things like love, things like a servant girl's heart. And so we don't only pray for God's response. We also pray because the act of praying itself changes us. Makes us more like the one who prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Prayer makes us more like Jesus. Because in the act of praying, we turn in humility and love and submission to God. So pray. It makes a difference in you, even if not necessarily in the circumstances around you third question i get a lot reminds me of the rolling stones and mick jagger why don't we always get what we ask for 
can't always get what... Okay, sorry. James 4 helps with this answer. James writes, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So sometimes we don't get what we ask for because our motives are off. We're really praying for me rather than for God. But, and please hear this but, our motives alone do not ultimately determine whether we get what we ask for. The only ultimate factor is God's will. Let me say that again. The only ultimate factor in how God answers prayer is God's will. Who can know, for example, other than God, why God answered yes for Peter and no for James? Do you want to go explain that to James' family in verse 2? We read in James 4.15, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In other words, sometimes we don't get what we ask for, even if our motives are good, because it is simply not God's will. After all, He's God and we are not. We can't come close to fully appreciating how God thinks, my friends. He's not, God is not someone that we can get a handle on or get a grip on. Despite the seemingly relentless effort by some, we cannot figure out a formula that guarantees God will respond in the way we think is best. All those books, how to pray, where to pray, what to pray, how many times to pray, what prayer to repeat over and over and over again. On some level, I'm sure those resources can help in their own way. But, 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 they better be acknowledging that in the end it's God's will and God's will alone that determines what the answer to the prayer will be. It is, in my strong opinion, and I don't trot these words out lightly, outright blasphemy, heresy, idolatry, pick any one that you want to suggest otherwise. Because when we suggest otherwise, when we suggest that our efforts necessarily manipulate God into doing this or that or the other thing, that makes us the determining factor. And look out. When we make ourselves the determining factor, we make ourselves God. And let me tell you, God takes a pretty dim view of others making themselves God. Ask Herod Agrippa how that all turned out for him. If you weren't here two weeks ago, Herod's insides were eaten by worms because he accepted for himself praise belonging to God. My advice, therefore, is don't do that. <laughs> now, when we don't get what we sincerely feel is the right thing, the biblical thing, the good thing, when we don't get that in response to our prayers to God, that is really, really hard. It can be crushing. And it's where faith in God is often severely tested 
And you know what? God knows this. He knows it's deeply frustrating when we can't for the life of us understand why he doesn't do what to us or to anyone is the right thing. Why on earth, God, won't you heal my little girl? She's only four years old. What'd she ever do to you, God? God? Are you there? And during those times, especially, for one, God can take it. Throw your cares to heaven. He can take it. And two, He relentlessly whispers words of love and encouragement and strength. And He asks us to trust Him anyway. Now that's a faith test. And when we're tempted to ask back, well, why should I? Why should I trust you when you allow such inexplicable pain? And that's when God's amazing, earth-shattering response is Jesus. If you get to that place, when you get to that place where you wonder about God's power or His love, because for some mysterious reason, He doesn't give the answer to prayer you're looking for. The one that's obviously the right answer to you, or to anyone for that matter, if and when you get there, consider, please, the cross of Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. God gave up His only Son. He allowed Jesus to die a horrible death for you. It's His proof that He is all-powerful, all-good, and all-loving. He gave up His Son, His own four-year-old boy, for you. And so, with that gift given, with that baby boy in His arms, He patiently and lovingly asks again and again, I believe with tears streaming down his ancient of days face. He tenderly asks when our faith wavers because of circumstances in life, given my son, given Jesus, will you trust that I love you anyway? I know you don't understand. And I can't explain it fully to you right now. But I love you. I love you. I love you. Hang in there. Don't give up. I love you. Trust me. I'm here. You can bet your life on it. I love you. Will you trust me anyway? I have three final observations about prayer from this passage. <laughs> I'm about to give you some advice on praying, but I hope it's clear that nothing I or anyone says, in my opinion, will guarantee that God will answer your prayer in the way you want. That's not why I'm going here. But these three principles of prayer are nevertheless found throughout Scripture in Acts 12 as well as models of prayer. And so it must be somehow for our good for whatever mysterious reason to us sometimes. 
These principles are there in God's Word for our benefit, to study and apply to our lives. So let's take a look. One, when we pray, we should pray earnestly, like the church in verse 5. Earnest prayer is throughout the Bible. Abraham pleading for Sodom. Jacob wrestling with God through the night. Moses fasting for 40 days, standing in the breach between God and Israel. Hannah intoxicated with sorrow while Ishmael lay dying under a bush. David heartbroken with remorse and grief. Jesus literally falling down and sweating drops like blood in prayer. These are not casual thoughts tossed toward heaven. These are prayers given in earnest. Do you mean it? Do you really mean it when you pray? If we don't truly mean it, what are we doing praying it? I've got a story here about a man who got caught. He got caught rushing through his morning prayers. See what you think. Our Father who art in heaven... Yes. Our Father who art in heaven. Yes. Don't interrupt me. I'm praying. But you called me. Called you? I didn't call you. I'm praying. Our Father who art in heaven. There. You did it again. Did what? Called me. You said, Our Father, who art in heaven, here I am. What's on your mind? I didn't mean anything by it. I was, you know, I just saying my prayers for the day. I always say the Lord's Prayer. Makes me feel good. Kind of like getting a duty done. All right, go on. Hallowed be thy name. What do you mean by that? By what? Hallowed be thy name. Well, it means... It means... I don't know what it means. How should I know? It's just part of the prayer. Does it have to mean something? All right. What, what does it mean? It means honored, holy, wonderful. Well, hey, that makes sense. I never thought what hallowed meant before. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as earth as it is in heaven. Do you really mean that? Sure, why not? What are you doing about it? Doing? Well, nothing, I guess. Should I be doing something? I just thought it'd be... Kind of neat if you got control of everything down here like you have up there. Do I have control of you? Well, I go to church. That isn't what I asked you. What about that habit of lying you have? And your bad temper? You've really got a problem there, you know. And then there's that way you spend your money. Not much going to others in need. And what about those internet sites you've been messing around with? It does hurt just to look, you know. Well, hey, I'm just as good as some of the rest of those phonies at church. Excuse me, 
I thought we were praying for my will to be done. If that is to happen, it will have to start with the one who are praying for it, like you, for example. Oh. All right, I, I guess I do have a few hang-ups. Now that I think of it, I could probably name a few more. So could I. I haven't thought about it much, but I really would like you to, to take care of these. I've heard others say that it feels like you're really free. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. We'll work together, you and I. Together, these victories can be won. That'd be great. Look, Lord, I need to finish up here. This is taking a lot longer than it usually does. Give us this day our daily bread. You need to cut out the bread and exercise. You're getting a little out of shape. Hey! What, what is this? Pick on me day? I, here I was doing my religious duty, and all of a sudden, you break in and convict me of sin? Praying is a dangerous thing. You could wind up changed. But go on. Keep on praying. I'm interested in the next part of your prayer. Well, go on. I'm scared to. Scared? Of what? I know what you'll say. Try me. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What about Kevin? Yeah, see, I knew it! I knew you would bring up Kevin. Lord, he's told lies about me, he's cheated me out of money, and he needs to pay. But your prayer, what about your prayer? Well, I... I suppose I didn't mean it. Well, at least you're honest. But it's not much fun carrying that load of bitterness around inside, is it? No. But it's sure going to feel good when I get even with Kevin. You won't feel any better. You'll feel worse. Revenge is not sweet. Think of how unhappy you already are. I can change all that. You can? How? You forgiving Kevin and me forgiving you is a package deal. Forgiving Kevin and you will have peace. You may lose some pride and the money too, but you will have peace. All right. I'll try. Some pastor in a big white church once told me it can take time, though. But I'll work on forgiving Kevin. God, would you please help me to forgive Kevin? Wonderful. There now. How do you feel? Not bad. In fact, pretty good. That, that knot in my stomach isn't quite so tight. Maybe I'll actually get some sleep tonight. I've been up nights plotting my revenge, you know. I know. You're not through with your prayer. Go on. Oh, all right. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Good. 
That's a good thing to ask for. But I need you to do something. Like what? Don't put yourself in places where you can be tempted. What do you mean by that? Magazines, movies, internet sites, some of those parties, some of your friends that distract you from following me, some of them are getting to you. They have you involved in some pretty risky things which will not serve me or you for good. Don't be fooled. And don't use me as an escape hatch. Use you as, as a what? When you get caught in a bad situation, you come running to me for help and promise never to do it again. Do you remember those bargains you tried to make with me? Yes. And what usually happens? I do it again and again and again. I, I'm sorry, Lord, I really am. Up until now, I thought if I just prayed the Lord's Prayer every day or prayed up a quick prayer whenever I was in trouble, then I could do pretty much whatever I liked. I, I didn't think it would matter. Go ahead and finish your prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Do you know what would bring me glory? What would make me happy? No, but... I'd like to know. I want to please you, Lord. I've been making a mess of so many things, and, and I can see how cool it would be to really be one of your followers by, by living life according to your will, not mine. You just answered the question. I did? Yes. The thing that brings me glory is when people like you yield their own will to my will. You know, I'm not limited to what's going on in your life, but I am limited if you're not responsive to my love. I love you. You know? I know. I love you too. Hey, there's no telling what we could do with my life together, is there? Sky's the limit. Lord, let's see what we can make of me, okay? Yeah. Let's see. Oh, and God? Yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> don't, be, um, don't be surprised if you hear God's actual voice someday that it sounds a whole lot like Norm Nadolsky. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Norm. Pray earnestly. Second, when we pray, we should pray expectantly. Pray expecting God to change you or your circumstances or both. And watch for answered prayer. Watch for the yeses, the noes, and especially those yeses in a way we don't expect. Expect the unexpected in our prayers. You never know. Someone may show up at your door literally knocking with the answer. Or there even may be angels surrounding your house. Pray expectantly. And last but not least, we should pray endlessly, no matter the circumstances. In Acts 1, the church prayed constantly. Peter's in trouble and the church prays earnestly. And they are still praying through the night in verse 12. 
Paul says pray without ceasing. Pray continually. We need to keep praying. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep hard after God in prayer, no matter the circumstances. Now it's on this note that Luke launches the gospel in earnest, beginning in chapter 13 to the ends of the earth with the Apostle Paul. In a word, I think it's a note of hope. Even Herod is no match for God. Herod's dead. Peter is free. And Jesus is alive. So go and get him, Paul. And go and get him, West Bowles. The harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. And as you go and get them, flood heaven with earnest, expectant, endless prayers. And yes, be on the lookout for angels. (laughs) May God go with us as we go, together with each other and together with Him, bringing the kingdom of God to a world that is desperate for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your words through your servant and our brother Luke this morning. Thank you for reminding us how important it is to pray. How important it is, even if we're tempted to think you're not listening, even when you don't give us the answer we just know is the right one. Help us, Father, given Jesus, to trust you anyway. You you know. You know, Father, how hard that is. But as the Old Testament prophets said, you told us through them, Father, that when Jesus, the coming one, comes, one thing that will happen is that the prisoners will be set free. And in Acts chapter 12, Luke gives us a story launching the gospel of a prisoner being set free. Lord, would you set us free in our spirits to pray earnestly, expectantly, and endlessly with hope that as we go together through the power of your indwelling spirit, we can indeed bring the kingdom of God to a world that is desperate for it. We love you, and we pray all of this in the powerful, precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. If you would like to pray, please come on down after the service. You will find people eager to do so. For whatever reason, don't be shy. May God bless you as you go this week. And see you next week for our special July 1 service. The music alone planned is outstanding. Bring a friend. God bless you.